I think it's always fair to comment at least briefly about the joy we have in singing the songs we have. Some of the messages have been truly splendid, so encouraging, so remindful of the character of faith, living by faith. You and I realize we walk by faith and not by sight, to borrow the wording of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. And so in many ways tonight, as we reflect upon questions and answers, the version for the month of May this year, we come to already the fifth installment of this current calendar year. In so doing, you may notice on the wall behind me, we're going to somewhat begin through that in a way somewhat like we are accustomed to doing. And you'll notice it on this next slide. The whole purpose, one of the main features connected to these questions and answers is the fact that we genuinely believe that this book has the answers to so many of the questions that you and I might well find ourselves in position to ask. After all, it would not benefit any of us for us to open Scientific American, the Herald Citizen, or yay, any number of other sources, but we do believe that this book has answers provided not by men, but by God Himself. It is having said that, that we will begin by looking at several questions tonight, and the first one is this one so that I can again make sure that I have it exactly as what the person I asked. Let me read the question verbatim. What does the Bible say about Jesus' ethnicity? What does the Bible say about Jesus' ethnicity? It might well be that when we hear the word ethnicity or something like it, we certainly might have many things come to mind, and so I thought it might do us well to try to define what is meant usually by that word, and it is in that sense that I'll attempt to provide an answer. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, ethnicity, or a cognate word to it, has reference to the quality or affiliation relating to large groups of people classed according to common racial, national, tribal, religious, linguistic, or cultural origins or background. To somewhat put that in simpler words, it's this large set of characteristics that would identify one group of people over against another one. It might include aspects of their appearance. It might include aspects of the language that they may well speak. It might include other features characteristic of that group as distinguished from another one. What was Jesus' ethnicity? You can already begin to see some of the things we do know based on the Bible. And it is to that point I would make the following comments. We do know that the Lord was a Hebrew male. We understand that quite well. Both Joseph and Mary were given instruction about the fact she would bear a son. He was a boy and grew up, of course, to be a man. We do learn from Matthew 13, 55 that his father was a carpenter, and we learn that Jesus is called the carpenter's son. In that day and time, that would largely suggest to us that Jesus too acquired somewhat the skills that would have been passed to him from Joseph. That is to say, the characteristics of woodworking, carpentry, if you please. It's easy to appreciate as well that that still might well not be what the person had in mind who asked this question. What about his appearance? What did he look like? There have been many, many over the course of centuries who have had an interest. What did the Lord look like? Do we know? I would offer the thought we do know a little from the Word of God, but it may not be as much as one might prefer. From Isaiah 50, verse number 6, 
we learn that apparently Jesus had a beard. There a prophecy was asserted in the ancient days of the long ago about the fact that when he was beaten and when he was under the duress connected to the scene surrounding the cross, that his hairs on his face, his cheek, were pulled. Now that prophecy referred to the Christ, apparently indicative of the fact that the Lord was to have a beard, whiskers on his face, if you please. But we learn three chapters later in Isaiah 53, verse number 2, that he was very ordinary in his appearance. You might want to take note of the way in which that's phrased. Who hath believed every report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. If you look carefully at the latter part of verse number 2, which we just noted, that would largely suggest to us that Jesus was not overtly attractive based on physical appearance. Now, spiritually, He had no equal. He was the best of the best spiritually. But physically, you wouldn't say He was outwardly incredibly handsome, but obviously He wasn't overly ugly either. That text says there was nothing that would have drawn you to him just based on his physical appearance alone. As you look further on that slide, we do know that being said and that being connected to the place in which he lived, that wouldn't have distinguished him, which would suggest that he had appearance quite like other ordinary Middle Eastern men. So his skin color was likely very much in that same category or consideration. That means he wasn't as white as you and me, but he wasn't Negroid like, say, the northern folks of Africa. He was typical Middle Eastern Hebrew male. You may notice on the slide, we also might note somewhat of his family background. We know his parents came from Jewish extraction. They were committed to that way of life. In fact, even when the Lord was 12, you and I recall, they had taken him to Jerusalem where the Passover was to be celebrated. They, of course, left Jesus behind. You and I will remember from Luke 2, verses 41 to 53. But isn't it interesting that at least that allows me to close the slide like this. What about his language? The Lord spoke Aramaic. That was the typical language spoken in that part of the world at that time. But it's also interesting that he could also read Hebrew. We know that based on Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following. So he would also, it seems, given that part of the world, have been able to at least understand Greek. So he was multilingual. Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. One final thing that might be note. I hope all of that addresses somewhat the ethnicity issue of the question. That's about as much as I was able to find based on the Word of God. If you have additional thoughts or ideas that you could share, please feel free to do that. But isn't it interesting that it might take us to question number two? What else besides the ethnicity of our Lord? This question is a somewhat longer one. It reads as follows. And I might also suggest there are several parts to it. When God created Adam and Eve... Did he know that they would sin? In Genesis 3.16, God condemned Eve to bring forth children in sorrow because she let the serpent tempt her. 
In Genesis 1.28, it appears God already knew Eve would bring forth children, for she and Adam were to multiply and replenish the earth. So you may notice two separate items really included in the question. First, when God created them, did He know already that they would sin? Let's address that part first. Let's begin it with those comments at the top of the slide. There are several characteristics that are directly shared with us as it relates to the God of heaven. First of all, He's omnipotent. That has to do with the power and capacity to which He has access. In fact, the Hebrew writer had much to say about that, as well as did Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 17. But that's not the issue of this question. Not only is His power of sufficient greatness, it's also noted that He is omniscient. Now that's a very interesting word in some ways. Omni, the prefix omni means all, and scient means know. He's all-knowing. God's all-knowing. He knows everything. As you give that, that idea at least some thought, consider how the Bible somewhat develops that. Could I ask you to begin in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10? In the midst of that prophecy of Isaiah, from the beginning to the end, God knows it all. And so there, there's no feature, no aspect that's beyond His consideration. You can't claim you've surprised Him. He, he already knows what's going to take place. In Jeremiah 1, verse number 5, that even was used in connection to the birth of Jeremiah. Even before he was conceived, before his mother and father had come together in that way, God already knew. He already had appreciation that the baby that you and I would call Jeremiah would not only come to be, but that he would be born and that he would be a prophet. God knew it all, even before Jeremiah was conceived. Doesn't that say something about the character of what our God knows? In Psalm 139, verses 1 to, to 12, it is highlighted that He knows our thoughts before we think them. Isn't that impressive? I would say, given all that, I believe that has at least a bearing upon some of the features connected to the first part of this question. When God created Adam and Eve, did He know they would sin? Yes, He did. I would say there are some other verses that, in fact, allow us to be very sure of that kind of an answer. In fact, I've invited you to consider these. In Ephesians 1, verse number 4, it's pointed out that the plan of salvation existed before the foundation of the world. So that would mean before the events you and I would call day one. That was when the earth was created, light was created, even before that. The plan of salvation was already in the mind of God. But let's face it, doesn't that mean this? The only thing that demands a plan of salvation is human sin. Did God know then that Adam and Eve would make the choice they did, and did He know it before He even laid the foundation of the world? Apparently, yes. Not only that. Two chapters later in Ephesians 3, verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus. The mission of Christ to this planet involved the cross, the shedding of blood, the establishment of the church, and the characteristic procession of salvation. 
That text says that was in the mind of God even from the perspective of eternity. Isn't that interesting? I might to that add this. What's that interesting statement of Revelation 13.8? What about the crucifixion of the Christ? The text says he was slain from the foundation of the world. That would mean that the plan that would result in the crucifixion of Christ was already a part of the plan and mind of God before the events of day number one of the creation week. That again indicates that God knew the foolish choice that Adam and Eve would make. He knew that that which they would choose would not be a good thing. And He already had in mind the plan that would put itself in action and would result in the characteristic of salvation. What about the second part, though, of the question? What about the promise, or should we say the punishment placed upon Eve? Let's reread verse 16 of Genesis 3. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The person had asked the question, apparently under the assumption that the bringing forth of children in pain was the punishment that God placed upon Eve. But I hope that there's one thing we can clear up here. It had been the will of God that the female would be the one to bring forth children into the world. That was not the punishment. It's not that she was the one punished to bring forth children. That was already a part of God's plan. That's again what the person noted in Genesis 1. It was to Adam and Eve, God said, replenish the earth, be fruitful and multiply. It was already procreation was a part of God's plan. That wasn't the punishment for sin. But could I ask you to note what it does say? I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and conception. Apparently, childbirth in that original state of matters was not to be a very painful thing. Apparently, the woman would not travail so as she would give birth in the way God originally planned it. What God said here as the punishment for sin was is that travail would be greatly increased. Sorrow would be greatly increased. The pain level would be greatly increased. So could I invite us to know there's a very great distinction here. Giving birth was not the punishment for sin. It was the great increase of sorrow connected to it, which in fact could be stated to be exactly that. There was one other thing about the question, which I believe we would do well to revisit. It's the way in which part of it was worded. It says, God condemned Eve to bring forth children in sorrow because she let, this tempt, she let the serpent tempt her. I believe we could improve at least the appreciation of that aspect of that sentence as well. God didn't condemn Eve because she let the serpent tempt her. He condemned Eve because she yielded to the temptation. To be tempted is not wrong. In fact, all of us understand that being tempted is a part of this life upon this planet. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. To borrow the wording of James 1, verses 13, 14, and 15. So I hope that we've done some degree of justice in light of this. And the only final comment might be to note, 
in verse number 16, there were two aspects of what the punishment was connected to Eve. First, the increase in labor and travail connected to the bringing forth of children. But notice the second one in the latter part of that verse, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The female submission to the male is etched beginning in that passage and finds itself presented all throughout the remainder of the Bible. And so that is the issue that brings us to understand more thoroughly male leadership, for instance, in the church. No female t- preaching over a man's not to take place based on the teaching of 1 Timothy 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. A female's not to be an elder based on the teaching of 1 Timothy 3, 2, and not to be a deacon based on 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 11, just as three examples or presentations. But all of that begins in the nature of what we've just read here. What about question three? The third question reads as follows. Did Jesus begin doing miracles after the Spirit came on Him at His baptism? That's another interesting question. Again, would you give thought to, did Jesus begin doing miracles after the Spirit came on Him at His baptism? I suspect that the immediate answer to that may not be the one the person had in mind who wrote it. And so I'm going to step through two different scenarios. Let's handle the first one immediately. First of all, you and I know what the Lord's first miracle was. We know that because the Bible reveals it to us. It is expressly said to us in John 2, verses 1 to 11, that the first miracle was the one that the Lord turned water to wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Verse 11 particularly says that was the first miracle. I suppose there's often been cases where there have been those who have wondered, did Jesus perform miracles when He was a little boy? Did He make up a ball of mud and then perform a miracle, make it be a bird and fly away? Did that ever happen? Absolutely not. Did he ever take a couple of sticks and make a living creature out of it and watch it fly away? Absolutely not. The first miracle the text says was the turning water to wine at the wedding feast in John 2. So when he was little, he didn't do some of those kind of things that you and I have often heard people talk about. That was not something that took place. At this point, we now know when the first miracle was. If we can ascertain when he was baptized we'll have the obvious answer to this question. We know that answer. Again, that first miracle was John 2, 1 to 11. In John 1, we have the record of His baptism. And it would appear that that presentation is rather chronological. And so that means, as you can see on the slide, in verses 29 to 33, in John chapter 1, we have a record of that marvelous scene when Jesus went to the Jordan River and was baptized by John the Immerser. So that would immediately mean that the first miracle did take place after His baptism and thus after the Spirit came on Him in that sense. So it would seem the evident answer is yes. But my suspicion is that the person who wrote that had something else in mind. Again, did Jesus begin doing miracles after the Spirit came on Him in His baptism? I suspect it may well be. 
that what was in the person's mind was, did he have the capacity to do miracles only after the Spirit came on him at his baptism? Did the coming of the Spirit equip him to do miracles? Could that be what the person had in mind who wrote the question? I don't know. But under the assumption that maybe it is, let's look at the latter part of the slide. I've asked you to give thought to you and I know that it is certainly true that Jesus was God in the flesh. John chapter 1 points that out to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without doubt, Jesus was God incarnate. But beyond that, could I add this? When you and I give thought to what the Spirit makes possible, we can at least draw this comparison. Isn't it interesting that we know that men were able to do miracles only by the equipping of the Spirit? That's the only way. Do you recall that in the laying on of the apostles' hands, the power of the Holy Spirit then permitted that person on whose hands the apostles had been laid that they were then able to work miracles? And the book of Acts gives us a number of examples of this. I would point out that in 1 Corinthians 12, Verse number 7, it is expressly said that way. The Spirit works through the capacity of that day and time in regard to the working of miracles. Now, the fact is, you and I know the Spirit came on Jesus at His baptism. That is said in John 1.32. The next thing to ask then is this. When did the Lord's public ministry begin? And when did the particulars of the other features of His work begin? Luke chapter 3 gives us somewhat of that answer. At this point, I cannot be completely confident, but I at least would seemingly think that once the Lord took the form of human flesh, which He of course did at, the, at His incarnation, that He was then able to work miracles only by the equipping of the Spirit in the same way that men were able to do, to do it at least in that way. And so it would seem to me that the answer is yes, on both occasions with regard to that particular question. What about question number four? This one too is a bit longer. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed before partaking of the forbidden fruit. Sometimes a young child today is naked without shame. Could it be that the nakedness of Adam and Eve was a sin and due to their innocence, God did not account the sin to them. Isn't that an interesting question? Do you see the thrust? Do you see the point that the person's asking? Could it be that actually it was sinful for Adam and Eve to be naked, but due to the fact they were innocent, God did not account it to them? Let's give some thought to that question. You can see on the slide what we might say, at least in concerning character to it. First of all, at the top of the page, before the sin that took place in the Garden of Eden, you and I have the appreciation that Adam and Eve were indeed holy. They had not committed any sin. Thus, they had not been separated from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. They were in perfect harmony with absolute righteousness. In Zechariah 12, verse number 1, it is there said that it is God that formeth the spirit of man within him. So if God is perfect and holy, 
and he forms that spirit in man, is it not then expected that that person is holy and righteous? So that when you and I think about a, a baby, that baby has committed no sin. That baby is not born in a state of sinfulness. On so many occasions, the Word of God reminds us of that truth. At the top of that slide, could I then invite you to consider as we go back to the scene of Genesis 2 verse 25. It says, And they were both naked, this is Adam and Eve, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here they were, the only two human beings on the planet. They had been fashioned by the God of heaven. God had made Adam first. And then by that procedure to remove the rib from Adam's side, he used that to construct a woman. And is at that point, after being married, that this statement is made, they were both naked, but they were not ashamed. As you can well tell, that's just a very matter-of-fact statement. No reason to question it or no reason to read more into it than what in fact is there. But it does raise the question. It seems to me there's only two real possibilities here. Either their state of nakedness at that time was not a sin, or that issue was a sin. person's asking us about this. Was it a sin, but due to their innocence, God didn't account it to them as sinful? And the comparison is made to a little child. Have you ever been around a little child, perhaps one who's just begun to walk, maybe about a year old, maybe less? That little child may have no clothes on whatsoever, walks through the house, thinks nothing of it, feels no shame, feels no sense of remorse. The person is asking, was that the way Adam and Eve may have been? I do not think so. I believe it's a very different state of affairs, a very different situation. You, you can begin to see at the bottom of that slide some of what I think would be that distinction. First of all, there's a great difference between a one-year-old and Adam and Eve. They were adults. God didn't fashion them as children. He didn't fashion them with a degree, let's say, of misunderstanding. That little baby doesn't know anything about clothing or the lack thereof, is completely unable to understand what that even means. That isn't true of Adam and Eve. By this point, Adam and Eve had been fashioned. They had been given commands which they could obey because God never commands what cannot be obeyed. They had been told to dress and keep the garden. Adam had been told to name the animals, and he had already done it. And furthermore, even with regard to marriage, they were adults to the point that they could enter into marriage and God married them. They were not children in the sense of understanding. That's a great difference between what is the case for a little child versus what their case was. For that reason, at the bottom of that slide, it would lead me to say the following. I do not believe at all that their nakedness was a sin. It would seem that the Word of God would lead us to conclude in their state in which they were then living without shame, that nakedness was not a sin. This next slide invites you to consider it like this. Consider what it might be saying about God if that initial state was sinful. God's the one who made them. He obviously didn't make them any clothes at that point. 
Clearly, they didn't need them. If sin, if nakedness was a sin, then could not it could not be argued God was at least a contributor to that case, to that state of affairs. For at the very least, He should have commanded them immediately to find some clothes. But you notice nothing like that was said. The only command given to them was not to partake of that tree of knowledge of good and evil and to dress and keep the garden. Furthermore, you'll notice that seems to overwhelmingly say that their state of nakedness was not a sin initially. Now, we can develop that even more thoroughly like this. I've asked you to do it on the slide. What needs to be said about the formation of individuals, the creation of people? It would seem to me there's a great statement in Ezekiel 28.15 about that. Although it's much later in the Bible, there is certainly something to be said about what that description is as it related to the king of Tyre. It is there said, Thou wast perfect in all thy ways since the day thou wast created until iniquity was found in thine heart. Now, if that was true of this pagan monarch, surely that principle is also true of children. So a baby is not born in sin. It is not born in such a way to where there would be that need for clothing. But that wasn't true, you'll notice, after they partook of that forbidden fruit. Once they partook of that forbidden fruit, would you be impressed with me at Genesis 3, verse 7? It says, immediately after eating it, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Don't you find that interesting? Immediately upon eating that fruit, whatever it was, their eyes were open. Now notice, that's a figurative expression. Their eyes were already literally open in the sense of their eyes and their head, but here, their sense of appreciation, their sense of understanding, their sense of the reality of the presentation of themselves, they knew at that point they were naked. Now, realize, that seems to be a different scenario than the concept of innocence in a one-year-old. Eyes were opened. They no longer recognized that state of innocence connected to what they were in before. You'll notice about the middle of that slide and on toward the end. What was different now, you see, was the issue of lust. That's the same thing we discussed this morning. Now, the presentation of the human body, there are certain parts of it that need to be concealed. Parts of it that need not to be presented. And I hope we're all impressed with this. It was a husband and his wife at that point. They were married to each other. And yet, there were still things in the general context of principle that needed to be embedded in the understanding for the general benefit of the human family. And that was the concealing and coverage of various parts of the human body. It's in that very context you begin to notice. Verse 7 says, They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. You and I would recognize them as little belt-like thongs or things like that, and that wasn't sufficient. There, of course, God, it says in the verses that follow, fashioned other clothing for them that covered what needed to be covered. Isn't it interesting then that that nakedness, it would appear, the Bible would lead us to conclude that in that state initially, though naked they were, it was not sinful. 
And it was not merely that God didn't account it to them. It was that it wasn't even sinful. But after they partook of that fruit, eyes were opened, and now the recognition of lust, the appearance of licentiousness, lewdness, and other matters like that, that brought about then the need for the concealing of the parts of the human body. As you and I close that particular question, that's the fourth and final question of our particular set tonight. And so why don't we briefly conclude. We've looked in the course of these questions at the ethnicity of our Lord, the characteristic connected to the birthing of children from the days of the punishment laid upon Eve. We've also given thought to the Lord's miracles and when they began. And finally, appreciation connected to the nakedness of Adam and Eve. I might use this as an opportunity to again ask and say, if you do have questions, feel free to simply drop them anonymously in that box out there in the foyer, and we'll be happy to perhaps starting in the months that follow to give some consideration to those questions that, that you might very well have. As we offer the Lord's invitation, it's always our desire to lift high the banner of His truth in every way. To become a Christian, to live as a faithful Christian, is by far the best life on earth. And it's the only life that has the hope and promise of that grand life that's beyond this one. Among the verses we noted tonight was John 1, verse 29, where John the Baptist himself said, Behold the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, which taketh away the sin of the world. It is the blood of the Lord, as the great Lamb of God, which is able to take away the sin of the world. It may be at this moment there's someone in this assembly who recognizes the great burden that comes with sin, how much havoc it wreaks in life, and what great problems and difficulties it brings, and what a great sense of eternal doom rests because of it. But isn't it also wonderful to contemplate the forgiveness available for, through Jesus Christ? If we could be of assistance tonight, if you've never become a Christian, won't you believe in the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? If you have known that way of life, but perhaps due to weakness and failure, you've begun to live a life of habitual sin, but you've come to your senses tonight just as the prodigal did in Luke 15, verses 11 and following. We'd be happy to help you tonight. If you've repented of those things and make confession of them, God's promised to forgive. Brother Eddie's chosen this psalm of encouragement. If we could be of help to you, won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.